welcome to The Footprint 40, a new podcast that gets under the skin of the sustainability issues affecting the food service sector. My name is Nick Hughes, Footprint's Associate Editor, and in each episode I'll be joined by my fellow Associate Editor David Burrows to chew over the news and views making the headlines in our industry, in company with a special guest. For our first podcast, we were delighted to be joined by Barbara Bray, MBE, nutrition and food safety expert and director of the Oxford Farming Conference. You'll definitely want to hear Barbara's insights on how food service businesses can support people to eat healthy, sustainable diets. The Footprint 40 is kindly sponsored by Myco UK, who are delighted to support the sharing of critical insights at a time when we must all rise to the challenge of protecting our planet. Barbara, welcome. Uh, we're delighted to have you join us for the first Footprint 40 podcast. Um, as the title suggests, we've got 40 minutes to dissect some of the key health and sustainability issues of the day with your expert's help. Um, but before we kick off, perhaps you just want to share with listeners uh, what you're up to at the moment, the work you're involved in, before we dive into those, uh, those topics of discussion. Thank you very much for having me. So for your listeners' benefit, I work as a food safety and nutrition consultant, mainly with the SME sector in food industry. So I work with a range of people who might be growers, food manufacturers, and the occasional foray into retail and food service sectors. So I have got quite a range of clients. But when I'm not doing the food safety, I am looking a lot at nutrition strategy. And over the last few years, that's become a bigger piece of my work, especially since I did my Nuffield farming study back in 2017, where I travelled internationally and had a look at what countries were doing around the world on on health and food policy and also how they consume vegetables and the the types of foods that they're consuming and how how we can learn from that and use that in, in what we do. And I found that people who are asking me to look at nutrition now, rather than looking specifically at labelling, you know, for calories or looking at how they can get a little bit less sat fat in a recipe, are thinking a bit more longer term. They're looking more about, more strategically, at things like sustainable nutrition. And even thinking wider still. So, for example, I had a client come to me earlier in the year, another consultancy business, wanting to find out more about who the key players are in the UN food system strategy. So what are people talking about and what they're, what they're planning to, to put forward in that food system and how they're getting involved with the United Nations voluntary guidelines on food systems and nutrition. So multinational companies wanting to understand the lie of the land and what is happening in the background so they can really get a feel for the direction of travel, especially around things like the target, the um, sustainable development goal of, of zero hunger. Because I do think that food companies are realising that the responsibility is not just a governmental one, it also relies on them to find a solution. So that was a piece of work that I probably did back in February. Um, and also at the beginning of the year, I was looking at a business that was producing plant-based foods. And they are a, a big, well, when I say big business, about 30 million turnover. So they've got meat products and plant-based products. And they were just looking at how they could improve the quality of the plant-based products from a nutrition point of view. Because what they were saying is meat products are relatively nutritionally dense. You know, they, they come with certain things, you know, from a protein and micronutrient point of view that are quite hard to mimic in a plant-based food unless you're putting in quite a range of of fillers and and additives, and they didn't really like that. So they were looking at what else they could do to make the product more natural, inverted commas, but still deliver on micronutrients. So that's 
something that I see a little bit more of, especially since the end of the pandemic, when everyone's trying to find a way of claiming that their food is, is healthy and it's good for you and it helps you with your maintain a good immune system. So I don't think that's going to die away anytime soon. And then I think what will become a bit more prominent is the work around high salt, fat, sugar, as people are trying to find the virtues in their products. And it's a difficult one because not every product that's high in fat or high in salt or high in sugar is necessarily bad for you. It's all about portions and it's also about the overall profile of the food. But there are one or two products that get caught out because of the inherent nature of the raw material. And, that, you know, it's a bit like the, the sugar issue where fruits were getting caught in the whole, well, you know, it's got a lot of sugar in. We had to distinguish between added sugar and so on. And I think there'll be some casualties in the high fat, salt and sugar debate as well. So there are three of the things this quarter that have really been on my on my desk. Great, and and that aligns very nicely with what uh, what we're going to talk about today, which which is nutrition, really. And it's it feels like a really important time for nutrition policy in this country. Um, we've got a lot of reorganisation going on in Whitehall. Um, obviously, with Public Health England being being wound down, we had a, a obesity strategy published last summer, which was the th- the third, I think, in the last four years. So it's, you know, there's a lot of government activity. Um, and we've got a new Office for Health Protection being set up to to uh, take forward some of that work that was previously undertaken by Public Health England and, and reformulation, uh, as you mentioned, being being one such area. So, so how would you, Barbara, summarise the current state of nutrition policy in the UK at the moment? I'd say it's almost not come to a standstill, but it really has slowed down. And it's almost like we're in a holding pattern waiting for something to happen. So work on nutrient profile is is parked where it was a couple of years ago. The obesity strategy, we keep hearing new things about where what the direction of travel is. And obviously, we're all still waiting for the national food strategy, which is national to England, not to Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales. So there seems to be various bits of activity but nothing actually tangible that we can hold at the moment and say right this is the new direction of travel so it'll be interesting to see what happens in another six months and where we're at with it. Yes absolutely a lot of proposals on the table a lot of promises of legislation not too much that has actually been delivered to date and 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 we wrote it we published a piece not so long ago asking whether there is an element of backsliding going on potentially and and, and the pandemic could be one cause of that. Obviously, businesses um, re- really under the cosh at the moment, particularly in the food service sector, uh, having been closed for much of the past year. And there's a question whether whether governments want to saddle businesses re- with extra uh, reg- regulatory burdens at this time. But but equally, you've spoken, Barbara, previously about this uh, the kind of uh, the paradox of, of of intervention versus personal choice and uh, and voluntary measures and but also how our choices are shaped by the environments um in, in which we live uh, and not just by 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 what we see on the shelf so um you, there's a role for government here but clearly there's also a role for businesses um and do you feel businesses are sort of stepping up to the plate on on nutrition and obesity oh there's definitely a movement i think in terms of which businesses are doing well and which businesses aren't. There'll always be some who are 
ahead of the curve and, and doing the right thing. So they've spent the, the time, energy and resources to look at what good looks like for the population and how they can help. But then there'll also be others that want to be seen to be doing the right thing and they'll, they'll stick a label on something or promote it as as healthy, where really they're giving something a health halo where it really shouldn't have one. And that's the thing that concerns me because it makes people feel, it gives them a false sense of security. It makes you feel like you're doing the right thing when you buy that product, when actually by eating it in, you know, overeating and not eating it in the right quantity, you could actually be doing yourself a bit of harm. And people don't necessarily have that knowledge to work out, well, I should only be having this once a week or, you know, the odd portion here or there. They think, well, it's healthy. I can have as much as I want. And we know Obviously, that's not true. And I think we've always had that problem. You know, when you see diet foods of the 1980s and 90s, everybody thought, oh, it's, it's only got 5% fat or 2% fat. I'll just have double. And you think, well, actually, no, the overall calories is still increased if you have double of something. So there's that lack of understanding, I think, within the general public about how formulated and packaged foods work. And there isn't really the will, I'd say, from the majority of food producers to make it easy for people. It's almost like they they want to buy them to buy a certain type of product because it's profitable, which I get because that's how business works. But finding something that that works for everybody that's healthy and you know sustainable, I think there's still a bit of work to do. And while some businesses are making the right decisions in that regard, I think there are one or two who are thinking more about profitability rather than the health of the nation. Yes. David, I know you've, you're interested in, in the investor movement as well, not just, you know, pressure, yes, coming to an extent from government, uh, although not necessarily being delivered in the statute book, but we're increasingly seeing investors asking questions of big businesses uh, regarding the health profile of their, of their products uh, and, and really saying, look, you know, uh, if you want us to invest for the long term, you need to be showing that you're fully committed to the public health agenda and the sustainability agenda, of course. But uh, with Tesco being a recent example, yeah, Nick, I think uh, I think what we're seeing is is more of these um, shareholder activists starting to unpick uh, what companies are doing on uh, sustainability, and when it comes to food companies, uh, that the attention turns to things like carbon emissions, it turns to ethics, but it also turns to health. And that's what we saw with Tesco um, just recently with its commitment after pressure, um, following pressure, uh, to, to to ensure that I think it was 65% of its sales are, are healthy come 2025. I, I, Barbara, do you see more of that? Do you see more of that kind of attention coming on on the the the, the health of companies' portfolios, and maybe you know expanding further in from retail to food manufacturers, but also then food service and fast food chains and contract caterers. I think so because it's it's just the start of something. It's the start of a movement, and once people realise that it's effective. And I think this type of activity is effective because when you look at people who stand outside a conference protesting because they didn't want to pay for a ticket to go in, you think, well, where is the impact of that? Whereas if you are a shareholder, you do have a voice, you do have a vote and a seat at the table and you can change policy. And I think that will become something that's more important. So it won't just apply to the, the huge multinationals. It will go across all different sectors as people realise that they can 
initiate these types of changes. And when you look at activism in general, yes, we do have still have our protests, but a story that caught my attention last year was one to do with craftivism, where a group of needle workers and embroiders embroidered some hankies to send to the, the MS board to help promote the idea of looking after their workers in the the um, supply chain around clothing. So we know that it can be done. And it's that gentle voice and persuasion by saying, yes, I like your product. Yes, I'm a shareholder. And I would like you to do the right thing for the supply chain or for health or ethics or whatever it is that people are passionate about. And I do think that NGOs will need to be answerable because one or two of them might have been a bit self-serving in the way that they pursue agendas to help get a bigger profile rather than thinking of the the impact and outcomes on, on the populations that they're trying to help. So this is a welcome change, in my view. Yeah, I think it'll certainly give um, uh, some NGOs pause for thought, I think, in terms of sort of reinventing the way they they go about things. After all, I mean, they've been banging the drum on, uh, you know, everything from marketing restrictions to sugar food taxes for, for a number of years um, and not really got the traction as uh, as we discussed uh, uh, as we discussed earlier so i think yeah it could could give them pause for thought to to, to rethink um some of their approaches and we'll see more of that investor pressure coming i think yeah I th- and i think too that you know there are the ngo um uh, the the network of ngos they, ngos have different roles within that network so you you will see some NGOs, um, you know, working the investment angle. You will see others pushing for taxation, for sugar taxes. And we've seen recently the, the success so far of the soft drinks industry levy. So that evidence base is building. Um, but some NGOs also who will work collaboratively with businesses. And I think we've got quite a good example, actually, in in the, the Peas Please campaign. Uh, Barbara, I'm not sure if, you, if you've seen this, but we reported recently that there are now 100 business signatories to that campaign, um, you know, who have committed to increasing sales of, of vegetables, um, promoting more vegetables um, as an alternative to other perhaps less healthy options, um, and working with the, the, you know, the great and the good of the retail sector and the food service sector. Um, but we also know that vegetable consumption remains stubbornly low, don't we? Um, in this in this country, uh, we, we get nowhere near to to the five a day at, at a population level. So, what more can 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 we all do? Can NGOs do? Can governments do? And can businesses do to support increases in veg consumption, increases in pulses consumption as well, which which is another interesting area, um, and and get us help us all to eat more healthily. Oh, you're right. The work that the Food Foundation and Peace Please are doing has is, is really started to shift the dial, but ever so slowly. And it would be great if more people could get involved in that, because when you have a positive message about what you can do to improve something, I think it incentivizes people in a much better way. Whereas historically, we've had a lot of don't add this, take this out. And it's to me, it makes it a lot more challenging from a, a reformulation point of view. So you, know, you were saying earlier about the, the sugary drinks, that's been quite easy to do, but reformulating without sugar, when you think from a food science point of view, the, the role that sugar plays in structure and holding a product together, when you take it out, you pretty much have to replace it with something that holds the same amount of space and probably almost 
same amount of calories, if not more. So you're not actually gaining anything by doing that. And when you look at vegetables and how you can increase the portions of those in, in dishes, that's a much easier win because from a, a micronutrient point of view, fibre, it, it just adds so much more value, but it's not adding so much more cost. And I think for businesses, especially in the food service sector, it's just low-hanging fruit, pardon the pun, for them to pick. So if we were all lined up a bit more, because we were talking earlier about the fact that food policies is touched by 16 different government departments in England, and they don't all necessarily have the same outcomes or objectives that they need to achieve. So if we're able to line things up a lot better so that Yes, the Treasury might have the last say on how much money gets spent, but if there was a policy for public procurement to make sure that all of the, the departments were having to buy in a certain way and a certain level from a nutrient point of view to make sure that schools and prisons and hospitals are, are well fed, then that would be so much better. But at the moment, we've got this piecemeal system where each department is trying to save money on, on specific things and they they might cut their nose to spite the face of somebody else because we're not all joined up in our thinking. So yes, we have lots of different initiatives which are all good in their own right, but unless we pull them all together and line them up so they're not competing with other departments or other you know, performance indicators, then I think we'll just keep going round and round in circles for a while. Uh, and I think just picking up on a couple of points there, Barbara, is there, is there a... A, a, a worry among, if you're a, a food service business, a caterer, um, starting to play around with your um, products or menus in order to incorporate more veg uh, could seem the right thing to do in terms of um, providing healthy products for your customers. But also you are playing around with things that people have got used to. And I remember in your TEDx talk, you were talking about some of the, the moves by stealth, the McDonald's in New Zealand taking a few of the chips out of the larger uh, out of the larger portions. In order so it was to the achieve... whole industry. It wasn't, it wasn't one. Yeah, it was the whole it was, um, industry. The whole chip industry. Yeah. 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 I mean, that makes a phenomenal difference in one fell swoop. Yeah. yeah. Do you see, are there risks for companies doing these health by stealth initiatives or, or do you see that as a real um real opportunity um to drive change without really us as citizens and the public customers consumers really noticing oh david i'd say it, it definitely comes with a risk i had one client a couple of years ago and um they'd they'd run out of prepared chips for their their outlets their restaurants and they'd been substituted with something else that's slightly more expensive they were giving it the same price but it had a coating on it and it was higher in calories and it was absorbing more fat and we said as nutritionists well well don't worry because when it comes back in you know the problem goes away but because the the sales went up when they got the new type of chip they didn't want to go back to the old one afterwards because they said oh we're selling really well and we don't you know want to go back to our, our previous levels of income and so it is a risk when you change something and if it isn't as healthy, you do have a problem because if your revenue is going to go down when you make that change, I can see why people are reluctant to swap things around. But also people get used to new things. I mean, when you look at what we're eating now, if you go somewhere and you have a tapas plate with hummus and olives and things like that, 
back in the 1970s when I was a kid, you know, we used to go to Little Chef and places like that. You know, there's no, I look at my niece and nephew now, they think eating hummus and, and carrot sticks is the de rigueur, you know, whereas for me it was cheese and, and pickled onions. So, so trends do change and eating habits do change. I think the important thing is to do it slowly. So as a, a business, if you are providing, I don't know, one out of every 10 meals eaten out of the home, you need to make sure that you don't mess about with it too much so that people don't go to your competitor. But it's not about just doing what the com- competition does. It's also about making sure that you have a, a balanced plate. And from the food service industry, I often hear people say, well, it's about an eating occasion. It's about adding theatre. It's about adding enjoyment. And Yes, that's fine. But if people are eating out five nights a week, do they need theatre and enjoyment and a large plate of food on every single occasion? So how can we make it so it's the norm to have a a plate that's the size of what you would have cooked at home anyway, that's still good value, but still represents an eating occasion when you're eating with friends or, or family and so on. So we do need to look at the psychology of it. And When you look at what universities are doing around that, looking at how people engage with food, I think that's incredibly important to have that as part of the conversation in business so that people understand what some of the trends could be that are coming down the line and how we can shape choices and and the environment much better. One of the key proposals within the, the latest obesity strategy that will impact the food service sector is for calorie labelling on menus. Um, Now, there's a whole body of literature I know around um, the provision of consumer information and the extent to which it influences choices. But uh, instinctively, do you feel that calorie labelling will be an effective policy tool um, to, to drive healthier eating habits? Because you know so, some of the def- some of the arguments against it are that um, it's hugely costly to do, particularly for smaller businesses that change their menus frequently and that the evidence is fairly weak that it actually encourages healthier eating behaviours. So, so that kind of intervention, do you think it's, it's a valuable one or would resources better be, be uh, spent elsewhere? Personally, I'd say the latter, resources could be better spent elsewhere because there will be some unintended consequences that need to be factored in. And I don't know if those have been taken into account. So when you think of the people who are most likely to use calorie labelling, that's people who are already on a calorie-restricted diet or who have an eating disorder. And I think signalling to them what the calories are on a menu, especially if it hasn't been done correctly, for me, is, is too huge a risk to take just to help highlight to the rest of the population about their choices. And I think maybe there's a better way of doing it where we do have some kind of overarching label or a flag, red, amber, green, something that shows people that if it's green, you can eat more of it. If it's amber, maybe just one portion. If it's red, a really small portion. And that to me would be so much better than the calorie labelling and less triggering for the people who have got eating disorders and who've had a history of trying to manage their weight and struggling and feeling like it's it's all their fault. Because I do think some of these, some of the factors that are causing obesity are not to do with the individual. They're about the environment and how we manage things. And at the moment, it just seems that a lot of the tactics and things that have been using place a blame culture and place the arguments squarely at the individual for their, all of their choices. And I really feel that we can do better as an industry to help people and give them the better choices to start with. So they're, they're pulling from an easy 
selection rather than having to scratch their heads and think, well, I had that. And, I, you know, if you're going out to eat, you want convenience and you want to enjoy it. And I think that's the role that the food service sector can play very well. That they're bringing the convenience and that's why people like it. But also, you don't want to have people beating themselves up for having made a poor choice. And to me, if I've already decided that I'm going to go to a, a Turkish restaurant, I, mean, I, I really do plan to eat practically everything on the list of, of the, the tapas. I'm not going to have just one. That you, you want to do it because it's an occasion. And so the fact that I know that it's got lots of calories on there isn't going to stop me because I've already decided before I left the house that that's what I'm going to do. So I do think it's an argument that needs to be re-looked at, in my opinion. I think there are better things that we could do to help people manage their choices. And I think calorie labelling isn't one of them, especially when you look at the backdrop of all the other things that we're trying to do around sustainable eating and you know, sustainable diets. I think that focusing on just that one thing and giving it that level of importance, it has too many negative consequences for me to make it a useful tool. Yeah, I was going to say, it's also incredibly hard. What, what, one of the issues that's often forgotten is that it, it it's arguably a lot easier to label a packaged food that ends up in a supermarket than it is a full menu that might be changing based on leftover products that's, that are incorporated into the menu the next day, buying locally and seasonally, and all those other factors, um, which make you know, those, those markers, those labels more difficult in a, in a food service environment. So I think I like the idea of that more straightforward, uh, all-encompassing label, um, which we can maybe dig into a little bit as well. Um, and also, I wonder whether it's actually become a little bit easier to flag these kind of things, given that we're buying a lot of our sort of out-of-home eating online and having it delivered to our homes is it easier to flag something that's healthier or lower environmental impact or seasonal on your computer than it is when you go into the store i wonder you know is there a role there for nudging people in the right especially if we're eating as many takeaways as some of the reports suggest that would be a great idea to to flag it there because people are spending the time to look through I'm sure there's a lot of habitual purchasing where people just buy the same thing every Friday night because that's what they've always done. But at least you have the opportunity, whereas when you literally arrive and you, you've got a queue of people behind you, you're almost under pressure, aren't you? And you, I think time pressure does enc encourage people to make choices that aren't great because they just go for the first thing, easiest thing, and then, and then get out. Whereas if you've got a bit of time, you're a little bit more reflective, especially if you're not doing it when you're massively hungry. So maybe that could be a good option. To your point earlier, Barbara, about whether you could recreate traffic lights in a in an out of home setting, um, it's you know with a traffic light label, you're still certainly the the ones we have in the UK for packaged goods. You're still asking people to sort of make trade offs between different nutrients, essentially, aren't you? So so you've got a Let's say you've got a red light for sugar, but a green light for fat and, uh, and an amber light for salt. So you're having to ask people to make those, make those trade-offs. Now, obviously, the language of sustainable diets, I think we're all familiar with. I think increasingly people within the sector are familiar with. And there we're talking about the intersection between nutrition on the one hand and environment on the other hand. Now, if you look at a, a food label, 
the nutrition angle is certainly pretty well covered off at the moment. The, the environmental angle, less so, other than through certification schemes, which tend to focus on single issues. Now, are we at the point where we need to think seriously about integrating labels to account for both nutrition and the environmental performance of products? And David, you wrote just last week about a new EcoScore label that has been developed uh, in the EU and is being trialled by certain companies that, that actually tries to do this, although I believe that doesn't bring nutrition into the equation. But we're clearly moving in the direction where people or uh, want more information about the sustainability of products at the point of sale. Yeah, I, th- I, I think so. And that, you're, you're right, Nick. That, that EcoScore label, what it tried to do is to mimic the proposed NutriScore label, potentially being rolled out across Europe, so that it gave sort of simple information in a format people were familiar with. Uh, what it what what it, what it did do is it, it it pushed the boundaries slightly on a on a carbon label by also scoring for things like provenance um, ethical certification schemes like rainforest alliance or or fair trade whether it was organic um, if the commodities were high risk in terms of deforestation then you'd lose points uh, so it started to make those labels a little bit more complicated. Uh, And I think incorporating nutrition, and interesting to get Barbara's thoughts on this, incorporating nutrition as well might be very tricky, but could it equally be extremely valuable to do that? So I think often when we we start talking about eco-labels and carbon labelling and climate labels, Everybody gets tangled up in finding the perfect label and the perfect data. But I wonder whether we need something. We need to, we've got lots of data. Let's just do something simply that, that moves us in the right direction. It might not be perfect, but it's, it's moving us to a place that's better than now. I do like that, David. I just love the idea of saying we can't achieve perfection at population level because, you know, it's, you're working with a mass of people. So it's about being a guide rather than the overall, you must eat like this every single time. And I think having a combination of a nutrition score, so the Nutri-Score, for example, where it literally was a sort of gradation, um, amber to green type of thing. So it wasn't about one nutrient, it was about the overall nutrient profile of the dish and incorporating sustainability parameters is a good compromise because people are having to compromise anyway. So let's not worry about achieving perfection just get them to eat something that's slightly higher up, you know, in the green than in the red. And that just gives them a bit of a, a chance to get a, a better decision made. And I think it's it will evolve. You know, we, we're all not agreed on the, the right way forward. But I think the longer we spend doing nothing, the, the harder it is going to be to change people's behaviour. The people who are really healthy and switched on are going to do it anyway. And those who haven't got the time and energy just need that support and, and help around it. So... I'd love to see something that incorporates everything, even if the people who are water scarcity purists say that it favours too much of the carbon emissions or whatever it is. We, we just need to have something to help us along that journey because at the moment people are saying, well, I'm not eating that because of food miles or I'm not eating that because it, it's animal protein. Or, you know, they're making poor decisions based on the knowledge that they've got 
and they think that they're doing the right thing. That's the worst of it. You know, they genuinely think that they're making the right choices, but because they haven't got the full suite of information at the fingertips, they're not really thinking of all the consequences and all the unintended consequences of if everybody suddenly starts eating more of one particular thing, then the production mechanism and system for that takes up more resources. So actually switching to more of one particular product might have a negative impact on eating across a range of things that were slightly worse for the environment. So we're never going to have a perfect solution. Yeah, and I think that's where the, maybe there's a bit more um, of the heavy lifting to be done by food service, hospitality, food industry companies on this uh, to progress things. So they're doing the heavy lifting. So we don't have to go into a cafe, a restaurant, a canteen, a supermarket and weigh up the, the plethora of different environmental cues they, that there are. With health, it's, it's relatively easy uh, with the traffic light labelling in, in the UK. But with sustainability more widely, it's a, it's a minefield. Is the problem to a, a lack of standardisation currently and that would be a real benefit from 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 one uh, label um, that, that that was widely adopted. Because you know, you look in the, the packaged goods sector, you've got lots of companies already doing their own thing. You know, the likes of Oatly and Corn are putting carbon footprints on labels, using their own data sets to do that, um, which is great, and it helps it all helps build consumer information. But but none of it's standardized is it and is there a danger that lots of companies go off and do their own things working with their own consultants using their own data uh and it just ends up adding to consumer confusion because it's not consistent um and um you know people just just cannot spend minutes and and uh, at every product they they encounter weighing up the various environment or environmental benefits we need something everyone can agree on I think you're right, because when you look at how technologies evolved, for example, you know, there's, there's always a, a couple of clear leaders. So, you know, you've got people who are either looking at Apple products or people looking at Microsoft. There's always something that comes out on top, but it just seems with sustainability and looking at the different parameters, nobody really has a, a solution that works for everybody. And I think what has happened is certain sectors have been able to clearly define what's right for them, but you can't then transpose that on other sectors. So, Maybe that's where government and policy could help by providing funding to develop something that is used nationally, internationally. But at the moment, it doesn't seem like there's that appetite to do that. And it's more about letting the market decide what the final outcome is going to be, which to me seems like the wrong way around of doing it. It's not, it's not like having a phone or a computer. I think it's about making sure that everybody has the right data and access to information. And if we can harmonise it in a way, well... Harmonisation usually comes from an international or national level, not from a market level. Yeah, I think you're, you're, you're right, Barbara. Otherwise, it turns into a, a bit of a wild west in terms of people picking and businesses picking and choosing the things that are important to them, which is fine to a certain extent. Uh, but if we all want to move in the same general direction, then you, then you have to have some kind of standardisation, whether... You know, the government, if it's if it's concerned about calorie labels, uh, uh, which have been on the table for a number of years, which are relatively easy to calculate, whether it'll get into the realms of carbon footprints and water footprints and biodiversity impact, uh, I, I, I'm not so sure. But 
whether that's where the industry can take the lead through UK Hospitality or the BRC, Food and Drink Federation, National Farmers Union. They're all working on things like net zero uh, together, it seems. So surely this is an opportunity as they're gathering data on their, the impacts up and down the supply chain to start pooling some of that and say, well, we've got a good, you know, a fairly good data set. It's not perfect again, but we've got something. I think you're right. There is that opportunity. But I do see as well some of the disadvantages because that's great if you're somebody who's selling a product or growing a product that's going to be on the, the beneficial side. But if you're, you know, in alcohol or sweets and confectionery, it's, it's going to be harder to join that party, isn't it? Because there's nothing that you can contribute that because you're not doing anything that's of added value. It's for entertainment purposes only. And there comes a point with ethics, doesn't there? Well, how much is, is the right amount to, to have a treat and how much is, is too much? So I do feel for those sectors where they're, they're totally superfluous to, to our actual lives. It's all about, about pleasure because they won't look very good under anything that, that standardises this kind of thing. So if we accept that perhaps in certain policy areas regulation might not be the right approach, and let's take calorie labelling you know, the, the, the marginal benefit might not outweigh the, some of the unintended consequences. Where do we feel that there is um, a need for stronger government regulation? And do we also feel that actually certain businesses will welcome stronger government regulation? I think, I think there's, a, there's, a, there's a, um, a sort of uh, a bit of a myth that businesses inherently dislike regulation. I think increasingly businesses want good regulation. Um, and we've had, you know, the likes of Dave Lewis at, at Tesco last year calling for mandatory reporting of, of food waste. Uh, progressive businesses are not scared of regulation. They just want good regulation and they want a level playing field so that um, competitors can't undercut them um, by being less responsible. So what are those key areas, just to close out, that we feel there is opportunity for stronger regulation around food? I think government... And that public procurement could be a lot stronger because it, there's just a bit too much room for people to spend as at least amount of money as they possibly can on food within that sector. I think anything that's to do with the prisons, hospitals, schools, we need to allocate a minimum amount of money that means that you can buy food that is going to be nutritious for the, the end users. And I just feel that we have a responsibility to do that. And if you also look at some countries where they might be poorer than us because we're quite a rich, wealthy nation, but they actually have it in legislation that there is a right to food. And I know we're coming off topic slightly, it's more about money, but I think for a given group of people, we need to recognise that. And that's something that we could put in legislation so at least people don't go hungry. And then from a food service point of view, or even when you're looking at the food supply chain and food waste, I, I do like the idea of, of having some regulation around that. And I, I just think there's a missed opportunity around surplus food or food that happens to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. At the moment, we're kind of saying, well, surplus food has to go into the charity sector. But whether we have a charity sector or not, that surplus food will always be there because Growers always plant more than they need so they can fulfil the contracts and manufacturers always make a, a bit more than they need so they can fulfil the contracts. And I just think that there should be a home for that food or a secondary hub or a way of managing that rather than letting people just dump it on, on charity saying it's for a good cause or just find a way of 
managing that surplus food sector better, whether it's processed food that's in the you know confectionery sector or whether it's it's whole fresh food that's coming from the fruit and vegetable sector. I just feel that there's a lot more work to be done in that that space. Yes, I, I agree entirely. And I think on your point about public procurement, Barbara, that is going to be a real live issue over the next six months. Um, my understanding is it will feature heavily in, in the part two of the national food strategy. Um, the, we had the, the EFRA inquiry um, recently that was quite scathing actually about, about current public procurement for food and the standards and then the enforcement and, and how really the guidelines, there are just so many loopholes at the moment that, that uh, businesses can really justify procuring anything and still fall within those guidelines. So, so there's a lot of potential. And I think actually you know, business leaders within the food service sector would welcome greater clarity around public procurement um, and uh, you know, the creation of a more level playing field. Um, I think that can only be of benefit to the sector. We have come to the end of our first 40 minutes um, for the Footprint 40. So, um, Barbara, a huge thank you to you for taking part. Um, It's been a really fascinating 40 minutes, and thank you for sharing your insights. A huge thank you to our guest, Barbara Bray, And thank you to Maiko for your support in making these podcasts possible. This podcast was produced by the Footprint Media Group. To find out more, visit foodservicefootprint.com. Thanks for listening.